Welcome back to the Planet Jesus podcast. This is episode six, Fishing for Fools on the Euphrates. In this episode, I review some of the excellent scholarship on economics that reveals a fundamental weakness in humanity that allows us to be easily manipulated. I review that material against the picturesque images from the book of Revelation that communicate the same tendencies for people to be deceived by the powerful. And finally, I consider a path forward beyond regulation to include heart change. I hope you enjoy the show. This week, I started reading Fishing for Fools, The Economics of Manipulation and Deception. The cover depicts a serpent on a branch with a fishing pole, dangling an apple in front of a troop of monkeys. As a Bible guy, that is an intriguing image. It conjures the seminal image that represents the Trojan horse of human nature, desire, and the will to do whatever it takes to fulfill it, even a deal with the devil, the devil being a metaphor for anything or anyone, just as long as it's not God. Desire is not a bad feeling. It's what causes us to pursue things like work and love. The authors, George Akerlof, and Robert Schiller seem to understand that there is a back door that's been written into our nature that makes it easy for us to be duped or fished. They start the book by writing, quote, The psychologists have taught us over the course of more than a century, in voices ranging in style and content from Sigmund Freud to Daniel Kahneman, that people frequently make decisions that are not in their best interests. Put bluntly, They do not do what is really good for them. They do not choose what they really want. Such bad decisions make it possible for them to be fished for fools, end quote. They are saying that by nature, we will pursue things that are against our best interests. Although we can deceive ourselves, they go on to claim, and I think it's our common experience that most of the manipulation and deception comes from the well-crafted stories of those who stand to gain from our decisions. These are companies, governments, really any institution. Most notably, and somewhat ironic, churches are guilty of manipulative marketing. They investigate and test for the best ways to manipulate and deceive, and then apply their methods. The authors conclude that people are fished for their vote or their purchase by the stories that they, or the marketeer, or the lobbyist frames in their minds. Many times the stories resonate with what we hope to be true, like an old trustworthy politician sitting on his John Deere, working for the people. We all like that guy, and that story. But what if the quaint folksy commercials were replaced with actual recordings of their backroom deals with special interests, and their mocking of the electorate? What if corporate boardroom discussions were recorded and broadcasted instead of the marketing on Super Bowl Sunday? I'll tell you about how the biblical authors, or the prophets, did just that. They took common images of their culture and the politics and the merchandising of people and reframed to reveal the ghastly realities. Again, to the authors, humans live and act based on the stories they tell themselves, As I thought on their perspective on the power of story, I thought how easily we become controlled by the narrator's voice. Whatever the source, movies, books, TVs, pastors, politicians. It's like Ka from the Jungle Book. Trust in me, trust in me. 
and little by little we are stupefied into acting against our best interests. Akerlof and Schiller go on to write, quote, There is another equivalent way to express the same thought. One of the most fundamental human skills is our ability to focus on some things and not on others. We could have called the stories that people tell themselves when they make their decisions their focus. This notion makes it immediately obvious why people are fishable, as well as giving us a clue regarding how fishing is accomplished, since manipulation of focus is the basis for two professions. Pickpockets and musicians have special skills at diverting our attention. Then they do their sleight of hand, end quote. Politicians and business leaders armed with their marketing departments have learned to use the methods of pickpockets and magicians to divert our attention and manipulate for their own advancement. We may be tempted to believe that this is a new phenomenon. We see advertising pop up on our web or social media. It feels like the advertisers are listening to our conversations or even our thoughts. They actually are using big data to profile us, and politicians and business persons leverage it to make sure that you and I receive only the messages we are intended to hear. It is not a new phenomenon, however. It has been exampled by many politicians and businesses detailed by Akerlof and Schiller. Beyond the examples the authors provide from the last century, we have a rich history of humanity's grasp for power, materialism, and luxury through the manipulation, deception, and subjugation of other humans. One example of past manipulation, deception, and subjugation of people by the powerful is described in the book of Revelation. Uh, it is the last book of the Christian Bible and contains some pretty descriptive visions. Because of what I consider faulty interpretive methods, many of these images have been misunderstood and then tragically misapplied. The most tragic interpretation places the events described in Revelation into the future, beyond the time of the author. It essentially removes any practicality from the study, because it really doesn't matter if none of the events occurs until, quote, all the good people are gone. I believe that the themes of the book were absolutely relevant to the church and the communities it served in the first and second centuries, and that is why the book survived. Before we dive into the text, because it can be weird if you're unfamiliar, I'd like to provide current examples of how we imagine things and show that it is not unlike what John was attempting to do in Revelation. We refer to the U.S. government and the democracy that supports it as Uncle Sam. We can conjure familiar images, the intense gaze of the white-haired man wearing a star-spangled top hat and blue suit coat. During World War II, his image inspired men and women to enlist in the war cause. But the same image was used by political cartoonists to depict other realities. For example, one cartoonist in 1900 depicted Uncle Sam as sitting at a table looking at a menu of food options. The waiter was the 25th president of the United States, William McKinley. He was serving Uncle Sam's imperialist appetite by offering Cuban steak and Puerto Rico pig and Philippine floating island with a caption that read, Well, I hardly know which to take first. If you go online and look at the cartoon, you will notice that the artist helps the viewer to identify the characters by providing the name of McKinley written on his waiter's towel. 
and the nations were depicted as graphical food choices on the menu. This is what John was doing with the images of Revelation. He was using words to describe familiar images to the first century readers, like 19th and 20th century images of Uncle Sam, to show the realities that actually existed. John wanted his readers to see that behind some of the powers of government and commerce that many of them were supporting lurked a dark and sinister nature and motivation, a nature that was easy to manage at the individual level, but became beastly at the corporate level. For example, the limited effectiveness or threat of free speech displayed on a street corner relative to the marketing machines that blanket the airways during corporate marketing and political campaigns. G.K. Beale identifies three basic themes in the book of Revelation. Persecution, judgment or justice, and salvation. The structure of the book repeats those themes with growing intensity. The overall idea is that the events described were occurring and would be recurring throughout history. The reason we can look back on historical events as Askerloff and Schiller did, and as Bible scholars do when they study and attempt to make relevant the scriptures, is because human nature is unchanged. We can look at the stories and legends and identify the trends and tendencies of our species. We don't ask if the Garden of Eden is real or the serpent or Adam and Eve or the images and stories depicted in Revelation. We know they are real because we live it every day. We see people grasping for power in its many forms, manipulating like the serpent or being manipulated. Adam and Eve were the first fools fished, and it continues today. But according to Revelation, that serpent in the garden grew up to become a dragon. And humanity grew from a family to many nations, deceived and manipulated against their best interest to support the economically and politically powerful. So with that, let's look at Revelation 17 and 18. Revelation 17 begins, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet-colored beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus." First, let's consider what John means by his image of a powerful prostitute named Mystery Babylon, who is sitting on waters and causing the judgment of kings and people to be impaired by her intoxicating influence and power. Although the scriptures are filled with national examples of prostitution, whereby Israel is called a prostitute for turning away from God to idols, this example of the prostitute is a pagan city. Babylon is more likely related to a couple of passages from the Hebrew scriptures regarding pagan nations. The first is Nahum chapter 3 verse 4, 
where Nahum writes of Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. It ruled the ancient Near East a hundred years before Babylon, in about 700 BCE. Nahum 3.4 writes, And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. According to Nahum, she betrays nations. Assyria is betraying nations with her harlotries and her charms in order to increase her power and financial position. Probably exemplified by unfavorable trade agreements like you give us certain goods for an advantageous price and we won't blind your fighting age males. Another passage is from Jeremiah 51.13, talking of the city of Babylon whose walls were bordered by the Euphrates River. Jeremiah writes, O you who dwell by many waters, rich in treasures, your end has come, the thread of your life is cut. Above that in verse 7 in Jeremiah 51, Jeremiah makes the comment, Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand, making all the earth drunken. The nations drank of her wine, therefore the nations went mad. So, whatever city John is comparing to the prostitute woman, it has a strong connection to two of the most aggressive world powers that ever invaded Israel in the Hebrew Scriptures. What city is John comparing to Nineveh and Babylon? According to Mounts in his commentary on Revelation, quote, The prostitute is Rome. Ordained in luxury and intoxicated with the blood of the saints, she stands for a dominant world system based on seduction for personal gain over against the righteous demands of a persecuted minority, end quote. So John is challenging the city's prostitution of all that is right and noble for the questionable ends of power and luxury. As the authors of Fishing for Fools have identified, the powerful and funded know how to intoxicate the minds with stories and harness the power of the masses for their own ends. The authors recognize what John recognized, that people needed to be aware of the dangers. For the authors of Fishing for Fools, that is done through regulation. John's approach is a little different, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. John continues in chapter 17, verse 7. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. He, he understood the allurement. He understood his reader's allurement to Rome and her power. Verse 7 continues. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. So now John is going to explain the symbolism. It's very fluid, and our Western minds don't like it, but hang in there. Verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. We don't have time to go into the complex image mashup that's going on here. But it is sufficient to let you know that the beast in chapter 13 verse 3 is the earthly ally to the dragon that is in the heavens in chapter 12, verse 3. It's that dragon that pursues the righteous woman into the wilderness. Now we see the beast carrying an unrighteous woman. The description of the beast as, quote, was, is not, 
and is about to rise from the pit, end quote, reminds us of the description of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 and 17 and 18. Quote, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. End quote. So the beast supports the woman Rome in her efforts to control and manipulate and acts as the antagonist to Jesus. The actions of the beast are destined to lead to destruction, and the actions of Christ are bound to lead to new creation, as described in Revelation 21.1. So back to Revelation 17.9. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. This is interesting, because it's like our Uncle Sam image. See, Rome had a goddess, Roma, who at the time was pictured in battle armor with her hand on her sword and her legs stretched towards the Tiber River. She is reclined across the seven hills of the city of Rome. John is taking this image of victory, power, and permanence, and he displays a drunken prostitute who is cohorting with the violent kings of the earth, but she's taking advantage of them. She is fishing for fools as she dupes the powers and the merchants. The idea of seven heads or seven mountains or seven kings. Notice the fluidity of thought. Instead of getting caught up in attempting to identify who the seven are, when they live, blah, 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 just understand that to the Jewish mind, the number seven represented fullness or completeness. This is simply saying that the whole nation and all the surrounding nations were supporting the power of Rome. Verse 12 continues, And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. End quote. This is looking forward to a time when the injustice and power of the beast is removed by the sacrificial acts of the Lamb, Jesus. We will discuss in a later podcast something we touched on in episode 3, that is, that the New Testament does include language that conjures war themes, but they're always used in an ironic kind of way, similar to the way Jesus died on the cross and that becomes the victory of God. So this victory of the lamb over the beast will be played out in many cases in the conversion of the members of the beast. For example, the Roman centurion watching Jesus on the cross following his grace-filled death as he blessed his enemies, the centurion said, surely we have crucified the son of God, which is a way of saying we have crucified the king. Anyway, too much for this podcast, so let's keep going. Verse 15. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. This is reminiscent of the verse that we read from Jeremiah 51, O you who dwell by many waters, referring to Babylon. But here John says the waters are not rivers but people. 
Isaiah 57, 20 says that the wicked are like a troubled sea that casts up mire and dirt. So this image of troubled people is like water. This is what's supporting the woman. This is worldwide support from rank-and-file citizens who are duped and deceived in the power stories and the economic good times, people acting against their best interests. As people flowed in and out of the Roman cities, they took with them the ideas and the philosophies, like rivers taking sediment to the sea, and her influence spread. Verse 16 continues, And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her with fire. This is clear. There is a self-destruction that's built into evil acts. It always turns on itself. Evil always turns on itself. The irony of the system is that it is supported by the people it crushes. The woman is seated on the waters. The waters held her up. You can see a kind of nested system of power that starts with people or the waters, which is the most powerful force on the planet, and rises to kings and authorities. Ultimately, when the whore betrays her agreement, the kings turn on her. What goes around comes around. Here, her true nature is discovered, and her supporters turn on her. So it was for Assyria and for Babylon, for Rome, and so it will be for every superpower that tramples the poor, the marginalized, or those who choose not to drink the Kool-Aid or the wine. Okay, let's jump to Revelation 18, which is John's depiction of Babylon's or Rome's funeral. If you were a Jew in the first century or a Christian who read the Hebrew Scriptures, then this chapter starts with a familiar exclamation in verse 2. He writes, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living." See the familiar words, fallen, fallen is Babylon? They're from Isaiah 21, verse 9, a scene that depicts warriors laying siege on the city Babylon. Isaiah writes in chapter 21, verse 9, And behold, here come riders, horsemen in pairs. And the watchman answered, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. John is comforting the righteous of his day that the system will be brought down. Just like Assyria was brought down, just like Babylon was brought down, Rome was not going to get by with abusing her power. The ultimate end for humanity's craving for glory and power and wealth always ends in catastrophe. This goes back to chapter 2 of Fishing for Fools. The financial institutions that were meant to protect the interests of the companies and people they served leveraged their reputations to dupe companies into buying junk investments, making more money and increasing their power while putting the world at risk. The machine knows how to survive. It will, despite the will of its individual contributors. Our global financial crisis was prevented from collapsing into the dystopian images many of our movies at that time depicted by the quick actions of super-intelligent men and women. 
I am concerned, as I believe Ackerloff and Schiller are, that if the fundamental incentives and the drives of our market economy are not changed, we are likely to fall into the same trap. Our craving to be like God causes us to look with admiration on the works of our hands. We think we've done all this. They are marvelous. Humanity's done some amazing things. But we no longer see the reflection of the image of God, but our own reflection in the things that we have created. The demons and the unclean birds, the detestable beasts, and all these are allusions back to Isaiah's cries against Babylon in chapter 13, verses 21 and 22, and chapter 34, verses 11 through 14. He's basically saying, Isaiah is, that it will no longer be a kingdom, that this city will no longer survive, but it will be reduced to a place where animals roam the once-inhabited streets. It's a symbolic version of the conditions of the city Will Smith inhabits in I Am Legend. Let's continue. Verse 4, chapter 18, verse 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. See, John is calling on his readers not to associate or align themselves with the city. They didn't have to leave, but rather leave her way of thinking. Let's continue reading. Verse 5. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand afar off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. I know that if you're unfamiliar with the images of the Bible, these things can sound really disturbing, and I don't want you to be disturbed. These are just images like we see in the movies that we watch like in I Am Legend and this dystopian world and zombies and all of that. It's a way of conveying a reality through art, and that's what John was doing. Craig Coster, in his commentary, Revelation and the End of All Things, provides a very interesting modern view of this funeral passage and the unsettling changes in the verb tenses. For example, in verse 2, it seems like Babylon has already fallen. In verse 4, the people who are grieved with the behaviors of the harlot city are encouraged to leave in the present tense. And in the ninth verse, the merchants will weep for her after her judgment. That's future tense. Most of you are familiar with A Christmas Carol, the book by Dickens that has as its central character Ebenezer Scrooge. Relative to the book of Revelation, it is a modern example of what might be going on here with John's depiction of the judgment of Rome and the window of opportunity God is giving her to change her ways. In the Christmas carol, Scrooge is guided by three spirits. The first shows Christmas past, the second Christmas present, and the third Christmas future. Scrooge overhears some businessmen, 
think merchants from the book of Revelation, talking about someone who died. They're not sympathetic about the man's passing, only that what would happen with his assets. He then sees the dregs of society fighting over the dead man's property and rejoicing that their creditor had passed. Finally, the spirit takes him to the graveyard and he realizes it's his death that has occurred. Scrooge cries to the spirit, Why show me this if I am past all hope? Assure me that I may yet change these shadows you have shown me by an altered life. I wonder if John is not using a complicated verb change to show that this is not all set in stone. That although Rome was in the throes of a thirst for power and a drunken on her own power, that she could change her ways. And that maybe today, those who have been following her pattern of deception and manipulation have an opportunity to change. Okay, if you've stayed with me this long, uh, we're going to finish up the chapter. I want to make an important point about the nature of Rome and the relationship with the church. Let's read first verse 11. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Coster says that the merchants are mourning from self-interest. John wants all those who are mourning to recognize that it's possible that their loyalties lie with this woman and her methods more than they know. Notice their cargo of luxury items in verse 12. John writes, Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine, flour, and this is a lot of stuff, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses, and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls. Check that out. 1,800 years before the Emancipation Proclamation, John claims that slaves are human souls, underscoring the violence of the economic system such that it would reduce humans to items of trade. Verse 14 continues. The fruit for which your soul longed for has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Look, these merchants simply mirrored her materialism and her win-at-any-cost attitude, even at the expense of others. Verse 16 continues, Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls, for in a single hour all this wealth has been laid to waste. Drop to verse 21. Then the mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. Notice that 
unchanged materialism, greed, and thirst for power will lead to a loss of culture and industry. It is not that these things are bad. John is not condemning the arts, the musicians, the mill works. He's not condemning the artisans. They're used in chapter 5 by the redeemed. And the marriage is the symbol to depict the reconciliation of humanity to God through Jesus in chapter 19 and chapter 21 of Revelation. Christians and Jews should not be anti-cultural or curmudgeons, but we should all be concerned for aspects of our culture that leave people vulnerable to victimization and manipulation. Okay, let's go on. Verse 24, And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints, and of all who have been slain on the earth. I'm going to repeat that. And of all who have been slain on the earth. This is not a Christian and pagan conflict that John is depicting. It is a conflict between God's approach to humanity and the value that he places on humanity and the value placed on us by the system the economic systems, the social systems, the political systems, those systems that devalue humanity. Notice that Rome had shed all the blood of prophets and saints, and as Christians we wring our hands for that, and rightfully so, but let's also wring our hands for all of the slain on the earth that they're responsible for. This reminds me of Dan Carlin's Celtic Holocaust podcast. Carlin reviews Julius Caesar's war notes and describes how the Gaelic campaign from 58 to 51 BCE cemented Caesar's power and protected Rome's wealth and security. What Carlin nicely depicts is the marketing campaign that Caesar promoted that painted a story of Celtic threat, which made Celtic slaughter a reasonable move. Rome was not only guilty of shedding the blood of saints, as Revelation 17.6 claims, but the blood of all nations that didn't align with her plans. Any family, tribe, or nation that places personal power, material wealth, and luxury over the needs of the marginalized minority or the weak are participants in the harlot system, a system that thoroughly protects its interests to the detriment of the less powerful and less informed. So since we're talking about murder, just let's quickly look at the first murder of the Bible. It was committed by Cain against his brother Abel. Cain represented Adam and Eve's grasp for power. Notice that Eve used the word created. In Hebrew, that's Cana, to describe her involvement in Cain's birth, which is also a wordplay on the name Cain. Abel represents the frailty of humanity, the frailty and vulnerability expressed in fishing for fools. His name means breeze. Cain is forewarned by God that his actions were leading to his own destruction. Metaphorically, it was a beast crouching at his door. God told him to rule over it, but Cain did not. He found his brother in a field and he killed him. I'm going to tell the story of Cain and Abel in detail in next week's podcast. But for now, just recognize that Cain's moral outrage and sense of rightness caused him to kill his brother Abel. God said to Cain, where is your brother? To which he responded, am I my brother's keeper? What would the world look like if we kept, that is guarded and protected the other, our brother, our cousin, 
extended friends, our co-workers? What if we reached out and spread across this globe, protecting and keeping our brother? The fundamental question is not how to govern or regulate the abuses by large corporations and government agencies. We know we need agencies, private and civic, to regulate the abusive tendency that was outlined by Ackerloft and Schiller. But how do we regulate the regulators and regulate the regulators of the regulators and so on? Are we not all susceptible to the equilibrium problem discussed? That is, where money can be made, fishing attempts will occur? Regulators are corruptible. The fundamental problem was identified by the ancients when God asked Cain, where is your brother? And Cain's defiant response is, am I my brother's keeper? As long as individuals continue in an attitude of gaining a profit or vote or advantage in any way at the expense of or manipulation of our weak, wispy brothers and sisters and fail to have a keeper of my brother attitude, then fishing of fools will continue no matter the regulation. Of course, the authors are correct. We need to regulate banks and campaigns and pharmaceuticals in order to manage the tendency in humans to take advantage and deceive for their own gains. But a transformation of the heart is required globally to remove the problem altogether. Like Isaiah's hopeful poem, justice will cover the earth as waters cover the sea. And don't you want to see that? What, what would it look like if we had a heart transplant and we loved our brother and we kept our brother? I think it would be good for you to go out and listen to Avenge Sevenfold's song, Beast and the Harlot. It's basically taken from these chapters that I've been quoting here. It depicts the abuse of power and the use of manipulation, which the entertainment industry and Hollywood employ at the expense of the artist. It's just another example of which there are thousands of what has occurred throughout human history. I want to give a special thanks to the brilliant minds that commented through the years on the book of Revelation and the courage of the authors of Fishing for Fools to identify a way forward to regulate the abuse of people without suppressing the free market completely. I appreciate the works of Adela Yarborough Collins of Yale, Craig Coster, G.K. Beale, and R.H. Mounts, and many others, including my teachers, C.J. Mears and Steve Farmer. Although the interpretation I applied is not 100% aligned with what they taught, they provided a foundation for evaluating other perspectives. Thanks for listening. There are hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there, and you could have chosen any, but I sincerely appreciate your investment of time into mine. The show notes for this and all episodes and other links to source material can be found on my website at planetjesus.net. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate it, and share it with a friend. If you'd like to help me defer some of the cost, please visit my Patreon account at www.patreon.com planetjesus. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>